Get ready for unique, rare, and little-known treasures from the golden age of radio. You're listening to The Amazing World of Radio with Adam Graham. Welcome to The Amazing World of Radio from Boise, Idaho. This is your host, Adam Graham. If you have a comment, email it to me, box13 at greatdetectives.net. Well, today we're going to take a listen to Nightcap Yarns, which was Frank Graham's first vehicle as radio's man of a thousand voices appearing over the CBS Pacific Network. Now, I should say that there is a lot of controversy or disagreement over the dating of the episode I'm going to play. Radio Gold Index who I usually look to as like a gold standard for dating programs, has this program dated in 1940 and says, though, that it sounds like a pilot episode and they have episodes dated from 1939. In addition, uh, there are various sources on when this series actually started and some say 1938, others say 1939. So I'm unclear about an audition recording from 1940. Nevertheless, it is as good a place to start as any. We're going to play this episode, and then afterwards we'll talk about its star and his amazing career as radio's one-man theater. This one is called $200. The Cardinal Company presents Frank Graham, One Man Theater. Steve Patty twirled a thick cigar in his fat fingers. He surveyed his lineup of gunmen. There was Joe with a thick red scar across his right cheek. Muggsy. Hefty and flat-nosed. And there was Skeeter, thin, wiry, and nervous. Steve flipped the ash from his cigar. Now listen, men. I don't want any slip-ups tonight. Because this is the perfect bang job. You get me? The perfect job. And so begins the story, $200. The Tuesday night story in the series of nightcap yarns. Cardinal's colorful action and adventure tales designed as a fitting capper to your evening's entertainment. Every night, Monday through Friday, a different type of yarn is offered. Westerns, adventure, sports, all with an appeal of their own. Tuesday night means crime story night. Here is your yarn spinner, Frank Graham, to play all the roles in tonight's story, $200. The smooth black car carrying the four gunmen moved almost silently through the darkened streets of the city. It was 2 a.m., the streets were deserted, with the exception of a stray bum nodding on a park bench and a few late stragglers. Steve Patty leaned back on the cushioned seat of his luxurious custom-made car. Joe was driving. Muggsy was beside him. Next to Steve in the back seat was Skeeter, prize shot of the gang. His fingers fidgeted in his coat pocket as he toyed with his automatic. Steve smiled. <laughs> everything had been arranged for, absolutely everything. He and his whole gang were thought to be in St. Louis. <laughs> that was a good one. In St. Louis, 400 miles away, and with foolproof alibis. This was too good. It was almost too easy. 
They approached their destination. The car careened to the curb. Patty leaned forward for just an instant. It's all set. All worked out, man. Now go get it. There's 500 grand in there. Get it. His three henchmen slipped out of the car. Steve leaned back. It was all working like clockwork. He didn't even have to watch. He knew that his men, silently and efficiently, would have the door, then the vault open, would have the money. And then they'd speed back to their private landing field, back into the plane, and to St. Louis. <laughs> oh, that was such a good joke. And they would go to sleep then, wake up the next morning in a hotel, ring for room service, and get a breakfast worthy of his cleverness. Uh, something very tasty, very rare, uh, very delicate. Ah, this was the life. All you needed was brains. He glanced toward the bank. Not a murmur from inside. Everything seemed to be working in good order. And then, Steve heard footsteps. Footsteps that clicked monotonously against the hard pavement. Cops? Steve glanced back hurriedly. No. No, there were two young men walking toward the car. They hadn't noticed anything yet. Those fools inside would only hurry or wait until these kids passed. Those boys were walking so slowly. This wouldn't do. This, this didn't fit into the plans. How could he get them out of the way? How could he warn those saps inside to stay in there until they had passed? Or then again, maybe it'd be better to hurry them up, make a quick getaway. But surely they'd suspect something if they saw a big black car parked in front of the bank at this hour of the morning. Parked in front, the motor primed for a getaway. Where were his men? What was taking them so long? Every step of the approaching walkers made him more nervous. He glanced back. The two young fellows seemed to be noticing the car. But one of them, the younger of the two, was pointing it out to his companion. And they seemed to be carrying on an animated conversation about it. Suddenly the door of the bank burst open and his men hurried out carrying a small black satchel. Steve squirmed on his seat, rooted to the spot. As the two young men hurried toward them, one of them called out, Hey, what are you doing there? Skeeter turned on. Steve groaned as he saw the body slowly sink to the pavement. Get in the car! The body lay there on the pavement. The other boy leaned over him, shocked, two dazed by the quick action of it all to collect his senses. Davy. Davy. They, they killed you. Steve Patty. Steve Patty, I know you. Steve was tense, and beads of perspiration rolled down his fat face. You saps, you imbeciles! You have such clever fingers, you, you can't make a fist out of them, but you're awful quick on the trigger! You saps, you... Skeeter squirmed in his seat. Hey, forget it, will you, Chief? It's a couple of lightweights, that's all. Nothing will come of it. Nothing in my eye. We have the perfect bank job, a job I planned for weeks. And you guys got to spoil it all. Muggsy shrugged his shoulders. Ah, what's one more guy in a cemetery mean to you, Chief? If you got a perfect alibi for the bank job, you got a perfect alibi for the shooting, too. Well, who was that? Uh, what was he doing there? Joe slowed down the car enough to call back. Oh, I've seen him before, boss. Uh, the guy we didn't get, I mean. Uh, he's an actor. I, I think the guy we plugged was his brother. Uh, the actor's name is Johnny Becker. Skeeter smiled reassuringly. <laughs> sure, Chief. Uh, just like I told you. He's a lightweight. But he couldn't blow over a feather. You don't have a thing to worry about. 
Steve leaned back and smiled. Sure. Why worry? The plane was waiting. And that breakfast, too. <laughs> He'd have something real delicate. Uh, padded foie grass or... Or maybe even fried sparrow's wings. When the police came and the screaming ambulance, Johnny Becker had been two days too shy to even talk. All he did was mutter, I'll get him. I'll get him. They took him to a hospital to rest. And all that night he tossed and turned on the white bed. The next morning, the police officials came to question him. It was Steve Patty. It was Steve Patty that killed my brother. They were, they were doing a bank job, and, and Davy tried to stop him, and then they shot him. The lieutenant in charge laid his hand on Johnny's shoulder reassuringly. Now, uh, are you quite sure, lad? You see, we, we've checked on Patty already, and it seems uh, he's in St. Louis. He's been there for a couple of days. Johnny looked up bewildered. But, but I'm sure. Now, are you, lad? Do you know Patty? Well, uh, only from his pictures in the papers. Uh-huh. Yeah. Did you see him? I mean, is he the one who shot your brother? No, no. No, he was in the car. He was sitting there. Did you look at him full in the face? Well, no, only a, a glance, kind of, but, but I'm sure. Uh, what kind of a car was it, lad? Well, a, 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 a big black car. Well, what kind? I... I don't know. Did you get the license number? No, I... I don't think there was one. But you're sure it was Patty and his gang? Well, I... I, I thought so, but... Johnny writhed on the bed, rubbing his head. It all seemed... seemed such a nightmare, so unbelievable. So... so like a bad dream. What could he tell these men with their insistent pounding questions? Davy was dead, that was all that mattered. Davy, his brother, the only person in the world he loved, was dead. He turned to the lieutenant. It, it was Patty. It was Steve Patty, I tell you. Get him. The newsboys screamed their extras in the streets. Patty, you're clear. Big black headlines, four inches high, soggy newsprint blotting up the fact in burning words that the well-known gang leader was scot-free. The shrill cries of the newsboys rang in Johnny's ears as he sat in the prosecutor's office. Close that window, for the love of heaven! That's better. Johnny stared in front of him, his eyes hot, his heart beating rapidly. Oh, what a farce that trial was, perjury from the word go. Why, you could smell that bribe money a mile away. Patty used up a big chunk of that $500,000 to buy off witnesses to get free of this rap. Prosecutor was calm, reassuring. Uh, try to calm down, Johnny. <clears throat> Law always gets its man. Maybe in the calm light of reflection, you'll rearrange the details of it all a lot better. Patty's story seems foolproof. Maybe, maybe it was somebody else. No, it wasn't. All right, if not, then uh, Patty will receive his due. Never fear. I'm going to see that he does. Now, don't be a fool, Johnny. Don't do anything you'll be sorry for. 
Don't worry. I have my plans. I have my plans. Johnny wandered down near the waterfront. It was raining, a slow, steady, drizzling rain. And far out on the water, the moan of the foghorns pierced the air. He glanced down at the water, swishing and turning around the feet of the wooden pierheads. What was the point of it all? His senses were dulled momentarily, and then he thought of Davy. He turned up his collar and pulled down the brim of his hat. He'd do it. He had to. Through the dim haze of the fog, he could see Davy's face nodding to him, reassuring him. Nodding, yes. 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 Johnny hurried up the street. He stopped at a small cafe. A cafe beneath the life of the street, beneath the life of the city. He opened the door and went in. Smoke filled the low-ceiling room. He approached the bartender. Is that... Joe Morelli here? The barkeeper glanced up hurriedly. How are you? Nobody. Nobody in particular. What do you want? Just like to talk to Morelli, that's all. What's up your sleeve? Johnny slipped the barkeep a dollar bill. The barkeeper sized him up. Huh. That's more like it. You ain't a copper, are you? Don't be a sap. Do I look like one? Yeah. All right, he's in the back room. Stay on back. Johnny walked to the back of the cafe and shoved open the door. Morelli was seated at a table, his head in his arms. He was snoring. Johnny shook him. He opened his eyes. He was an ugly-looking individual with shifty eyes and an unshaven face. Who are you? It doesn't matter. I've got a job for you. What kind of a job? I, I want you to get Steve Patty for me. What you got against Patty? He, he killed my brother. Morelli eyed him. It'll cost you dough. How much, though? Two hundred bucks. Johnny's heart sank. I haven't got that much. Sorry. You were... You couldn't do it for less. Morelli spat out a toothpick. <coughs> no. Thanks, anyway. Johnny turned and went out, straight through the smoke-filled room, out the door, and into the wet night. The next day, Steve Patty was out walking with Skeeter. Yeah, feels good to get out. I'm cooped up in the hangout so much, I start to feel like a fat lady's poodle. Suddenly, Skeeter grabbed Steve by the arm. Hey, look. Look who's coming down the street. Where? Right up ahead. Hey, it's that lightweight. It's Becker. Yeah, I see him. Yeah. Now, what are you going to do, Chief? Never mind. Scram. Well, what are you going to do, Chief? I said Scram. Okay. Okay, Chief. Steve approached Johnny. Well, <laughs> hello, Becker. Johnny looked up startled. Hey. Oh, it's you. I don't turn away. I ain't poison. You are to me. Now, that's no way to talk. 
I'm really pretty good guy when you get to know me. Yeah. Yeah, Beth. Sure. And to prove to you I am, I'd, uh, I'd like to kind of help you out. What's the matter, Patty? You got a guilty conscience? Cut that out. No. No, I just want to show you I'm a regular guy. Now, uh, you look kind of down in the mouth. You need some new clothes and things. I'd uh, kind of like to help you out. Yeah? Sure, sure. Uh, if you need any dough, kid, I'd be glad to lend you something, kind of help you along. Dough? Yeah. Can you... Can you lend me two hundred dollars? Two hundred bucks? Sure thing. Yeah, there you are, kid. Yeah, I'll be seeing you. And you can pay me back whenever you're good and ready. Johnny glanced down at the two crisp bills in his hand. Thanks. Thanks a lot. And Steve. Don't worry. I'll pay you back. And so ends $200, written especially for Frank Graham One Man Theater and presented by the Cardinal Company. Join us again at this same time tomorrow. This is Art Gilmore speaking. Welcome back. Well, an interesting listen, and probably a bit more than I was expecting. When you listen to the uh, uh, opening, you've got the idea that this is the thing you listen to at the end of the day's entertainment and the day's work, which, you know, back in 1939 and 40 was a much bigger part of the day. So this comes off, you know, in its description as a kind of, you know, relax, turn your brain off and don't think too much about this. But this script has got some really interesting subtle cues uh, that you can pick up on. Uh, probably the one that really does stand out to me, because I listened to this one twice, because I wanted to be sure that I, I caught everything. And one thing that did stand out was the um, notion of Skeets with the, uh, you know, fingering the revolver. And I think that gave a hint to the audience of what was ahead. Because this was not going to be a job, or should not have been a job, where firearms were discharged or were planned on being used. Uh, but, you know, the idea that you're sitting there playing with the trigger, I think is meant to convey that this guy's you know, a little trigger happy which really does play out in the episode itself. Another subtle clue that gets worked in here is that Johnny, you know, you get this description of Johnny having this conversation with his brother, and it's clear that they were having an argument right before uh, his brother died, or a very heated discussion at the very least. And so that was the last conversation. And I think that adds to the emotional turmoil that Johnny feels over the whole thing. You know, it's not 
just the death of his brother, but it was the fact that they had had this very heated exchange. Steve is also a really interesting uh, character. We get an idea of all of these, you know, very extravagant uh, tastes that he has. Uh, but he does not intend for anyone to die, or at least that's what he really wants to go with, because his plan did not involve anyone getting killed. Uh, but I think at the same time, he was prepared for that to happen when he planned the scaper. I mean, if you want to make sure that there is no gunplay on a job, the best thing you can do as a criminal is not bring uh, a gunman, uh, particularly not someone like, uh, uh, particularly not someone like Skeets. You know, you you bring him along, this guy who is obviously trigger happy. Uh, you you know that in any altercation is going to end up uh, in death, but you know Steve is willing to risk that so that he can wake up in the hotel room. But he's got a certain, you know, arrogance. And there's also is some guilt on some level, which, you know, Johnny calls out at the end. And you, know, you do have the twist where he gives the, the $200, which is going to be used to hire his uh, assassin. And the story is somewhat open-ended. It's not 100% certain that Steve is going to be killed. I mean, you're you're talking about hiring a assassin who will kill a guy who plans half million dollar jobs for 200 bucks. So I think some skepticism over whether Steve ultimately will end up getting killed is pretty reasonable. But still, it's ironic and it's, you know, an interesting reveal of Steve and who he is as a character and kind of the ways that he is has these major flaws that you know bring such havoc into the lives of others uh, and you know perhaps even into his own and I will also say that the district attorney was kind of you know really uh, really bad. You know, it's like he said, okay, I don't know what to do. Let me just get out my cliche-o-matic and uh, use those lines. It was really weird that this case even got prosecuted uh, based on, you know, how, uh, how vague Johnny's uh, uh, testimony was. I also did find it interesting that Skeets made the point that, you know, this was just a little guy, but he did turn tail and uh, was very nervous when Johnny was approaching him on the street, which I guess was either guilt or concern that Johnny might be able to identify him, uh, you know, when he had not been able to before and had only recognized Steve. Uh, so I thought this was a really good script. I think somebody put in way more work than they probably needed to on it and wrote in some pretty interesting subtleties. So thoroughly enjoyed it. I also found the general concept for Nightcap Yarns with this rotating uh, list of genres 
And the fact that it was a five-night-a-week show that, you know, Frank Graham was performing, you know, five stories every week and uh, each in different genres. It's reminiscent, actually, of one of the 1970s radio revival projects, which was the Sears Radio Theater slash Mutual Radio Theater, uh, where every day of the week, uh, you had a different uh, format, and they had all sorts of radio stars and writers and directors working on it. Uh, and here, you know, four decades before that happened, you've got a guy over radio where it's just like, yeah, I'm going to do that, but it's just going to be me and a sound effects guy and whoever writes it and announcer. So this was really an ambitious uh project for uh, Mr. Graham, and he did this for uh, a number of years. For four or five years, he was doing nightcap yarns. And the documentation on the series is not great. There aren't a ton of details out there. In fact, you can't even get agreement on whether it's nightcap yarns, uh, one word or two. Uh, and that was the case, actually, in newspaper logs, because I did a search on newspaper.com and uh, found uh, episodes of Nightcap Yarns listed under both uh, spellings. The program did tend to air, as the title infers, later on uh, in the evenings. Uh, so the popu most popular time slots I found for it was 10.15 p.m. and 11.30 Frank Graham, the star, came from Detroit and uh, began to uh, do broadcasting over the CBS West Coast Network. And uh, he did quite a bit on, on this. As we said, four or five years he was working on Nightcap Yarns. Concurrent with his work on Nightcap Yarns, Frank Graham created, wrote, and starred in uh, a series called Cosmo Jones, or it was also known in some places as Cosmo Jones Crime Smasher, which was a comedy detective series where he once again performed all the voices. And that actually became a motion picture through Monogram. And Monogram, of course, that's Poverty Row, but they spoke about this being the first of many Cosmo Jones films. Sadly, it was the only Cosmo Jones films. And one of those rare uh, cases where he was actually on camera, uh, he continued to do a lot of radio work uh, for the rest of his life, which ended far too early in 1950. Uh, did quite a bit of announcing. And then uh, fans of the great detectives of old-time radio will know him for uh, being the main lead in the 1949-1950 version of Jeff Regan Investigator. But he was an incredible uh, talent, and I think this show does show, you know, that particular voice uh, voice talent, which really brought him, you know, into, if not stardom, at least finding a niche. Unlike Paul Fries, he didn't really have that sort of lasting legacy in animation. 
he did uh, do quite a few uh, cartoons and quite a bit of narrating. But probably the film that he is best known for uh, narrating is The Three Caballeros, uh, which is a Disney film, and it's certainly not a, a bad one. I've, I've seen it a couple of times growing up, uh, but it's not one of the all-time classics. Now, in terms of work we're going to hear on this podcast, we'll obviously hear more episodes of Nightcap Yards. Uh, but we also do have another series he did called Yarns for Yanks. Yarns for Yanks was essentially an effort to take nightcap yarns and bring it to troops overseas. So he performed these. Nightcap yarns didn't just feature Frank Graham. They also had the idea to use it for just more generalized storytelling and story reading. So you had a lot of people who would, you know, just simply read a story, even if they didn't have the whole man of a thousand voices thing going on for them. Uh, examples include people like Kay Kaiser. But at any rate, that is Nightcap Yarns, that's Frank Graham, and we're going to be listening to and enjoying this really uh, special forgotten talent uh, as part of our ongoing series, and I hope you'll uh, be joining us as we continue through all of these programs. Uh, next week, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the other Men of a Thousand Voices who didn't do this uh, sort of thing and how they found some outlets. And maybe we'll talk a little bit about uh, some uh, of the other storytelling uh, programs that uh, were presented back during the a golden age of radio, though we're, again, not quite this uh, man of a thousand voices approach, or we may continue that till the week after. But at any rate, that's all for now. If you do have a comment, email it to me, box13 at greatdetectives.net. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham, signing off. <laughs>